Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. So show Lucas a little bit of love as he comes up here. Appreciate you, man. All right. How we doing, Forward Church? I feel like uh, Paul, you know, talks about in the first uh, chapter of Romans about how I've longed to come to you guys and to impart something to you. And, you know, I've been around this area for a while, um, you know, kind of passing through and going to different things. It's just never worked out for me to be able to connect. And and so uh, I did on this trip. I was speaking at a conference uh, in, in North Atlanta, and, and uh, we, Clint and I connected and said, hey, come on down. So here I am, and I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, there's so much I want to share when I'm with a group for the first time, especially in a short period of time. And it's, it's really, it, it's great because a lot of the places I have been going to with this book have not been churches that understand the finished work. They're not churches that necessarily understand the grace message. And so uh, I, at times I have to lay some groundwork with that because the last thing I want to do, you know, with a book like this, if you didn't see it coming through, you know, it's got kind of this little bit of a radical cover on it. And, and that uh, catches you a certain way. And people see this and they assume that I might be a particular type of person who authors a book like this. Uh, and, and they don't know that I wrote another book called Good God that, you know, deals with the problem of evil and deals with the book of Job and deals with the gospel of grace and all these sorts of things. I mean, you know, with that book five years ago, people assumed I was part of the emerging church or part, you know, some sort of progressive, although I'm not. With this book, I've been called a bigot, I've been called a racist, I've been called all sorts of stuff because they just see, and what do we do? We judge a book by a cover, even though we're told not to, right? And, and we come to a, a conclusion about a message without actually listening to it. What I want to share with you today is not about politics. It's not about Republican or Democrat. It's about the gospel. And I have a personal belief that, you know, we hear this saying a lot that, that, that politics is downstream of culture, okay? So basically what, how our culture is established will shape how the politics in the nation turn out. I believe that that's true, but it's only a partial picture. Actually, our faith is upstream of both culture and politics. And so whether that's no faith whatsoever, that will shape our culture, and it will eventually shape our politics. Or whether there is a, a, a Judeo-Christian framework, that will shape our culture, that will shape our politics. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and, you know, the, uh, um, and Clint and I were discussing this a little bit last night, the, uh, the Great Awakening, uh, the, sort of the height of it was during the 1730s. And you know who was born during the 1730s? George Washington, John Adams. I mean, all the founding fathers that approached, whether or not they themselves all had a perfect understanding of Christ or you know, perfect revelation of the new creation or, or the finished work or something like that, they were, they were shaped in an era where the gospel was going forth and molding people and, and, and changing people's lives. They were forged in that. The generations we have today are being forged in an era where the gospel is pushed aside, in many cases trying to be rewritten 
or quieted. And, and we see a godlessness in this nation, I think, unlike we've seen before. This is not something that just started. It's actually been going on. There's been an agenda for a time, both the enemy's agenda as well as particular groups of people's agenda to try to change society systematically. There was a socialist party in America before the formation of the USSR. I bet a lot of you didn't know that. In fact, there was a major push in the end of the 1800s and the start of the 1900s to turn the United States into a socialist country. And you say, we've been here before. And we have that same push today. So what I want to share with you, it's not about politics. There are people that are, have voted you know, red ticket their entire life that have a leftist view of God. They have a progressive theology. And there are people that, you know, uh, their dad was in a union and their grandpa was in a union and they vote blue every single time, but they have a great relationship with Jesus and they're pro-life and different things like that. I want to give room for some political differences here today. But I want to make it very clear that we do not have a choose-your-own-adventure gospel. <laughs> we don't get to decide what Christianity looks like. Christianity is a particular well-established message. It's 2,000 years old, and we could argue it's even older than that because the lamb was slain from you know, the foundations of the earth, the Bible tells us. And so we have a gospel that is fixed. We have, you know, most of Christians believe that we have what is called a canon, the accumulation of scripture that is fixed. I, would, I, I always tell people that that I, I don't believe in adding one book to this Bible, the only thing I would even consider an exception for is if they found the missing letter to the Corinthian church. Because there is actually three letters to the Corinthians and we lost one of them. That would be the only thing that I would even, and I would want a lot of consideration before we even talked about that. And, and so we have a fixed canon. This is an established faith that we have as believers and I think sometimes within grace communities, um, we tend to become, and again, I'm including, you know, my, my, from this persuasion, although I am a recovering legalist, I, I am a grace guy. And, and I think that we have a tendency, you know, because of this mindset of the finished work to sometimes just kind of kick our feet out up on the spiritual couch of life and not really worry about what's happening out there. It's already done, you know, to quit fighting, quit striving, quit doing all these sorts of things. Well, there is a culture war that's happening. And, and, and I believe that it's going to decide our freedoms to be able to do things like what we're doing here today. And we're seeing this already in countries like Australia, countries like Canada, uh, places throughout Europe that have, have you know, imposed, you know, uh, mandates. They've imposed, you know, uh, 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 really draconian, uh, tyrannical uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, just, just lockdowns on their people that go against every single aspect of natural law and, and certainly Christian values and any idea of liberty, but yet these things are, are continuing. And I believe that the church should be leading the conversation about what true liberty looks like, what true freedom looks like. We don't have to do this from a place of self-righteousness. In fact, I never will take a stand 
on the importance of, of a biblical worldview based upon my own righteousness. The, the, the moment that we get up there and go, everybody on the left is there, and they're sinners, and they're this, and this, they're this, and, but we got it all figured out. Well, that's not the case. But there is the question of not whether or not somebody struggles, because we all struggle, but what are we agreeing is true? What have we made an agreement with that's false? And I think that those are the things I want to kind of take us through today in this. So, so first off, uh, um, you know, just ab about this book, and again, it's available back there at the end. I don't want to make this all about this, but this, God did something with this. I was planning on writing a book about influence. As, as Clint mentioned, my church is called Influence Church. There's no I, it's just N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E. -E. And I was all set to write a book on influence. I took my laptop. My wife and I went on our first cruise about two years ago, two and a half years ago, and uh, uh, sat down. I got a balcony room, and I open up the laptop on the first day, and the Lord goes, you're not writing about influence. I got something else for you to work on. And I wrote, I wrote the first three chapters of this book on a cruise. And uh, I mean, it just, it just flowed. And, and I wasn't expecting to write this. Now, I am from a red state. Indiana has a super majority, super conservative majority at the state house, although we do have some problems with our Republican governor right now. Um, but I am in a blue county. And I'm in a very, very liberal area. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who was you know, on the campaign trail uh, for Democratic, for pres Democratic uh, uh, guy for president, he was really one of the front runners towards the end. Uh, made a deal with Biden, ended up getting a cabinet position, uh, transportation you know, secretary. He's openly gay. Uh, he's been the mayor of South Bend. He was the mayor of South Bend for about eight years. He's not anymore. Um, and I, in about probably 2012, I started telling people, hey, if you want to make some money, grab a camera and follow this guy around because he's going to run for president. And sure enough, 2020, he did. And, and he's built for this. He's, he's, he's designed for this. And the influence, and I don't want to blame this all on him, uh, and I've met, I've met Pete, you know, uh, uh, I don't know him super well, but, you know, we know who each other are, and, and, and he is a Marxist. He, his dad was a Marxist professor at the University of Notre Dame. He would probably call himself a democratic socialist, but that's really just a misnomer. And, and the, what I saw happen during his eight years in May, of mayorship in South Bend is I saw churches in the city swing so hard left. Some of our biggest mega churches that have been evangelical centers are now teaching things like critical race theory from the stage on Sunday mornings. And I really feel like in some ways South Bend was kind of this like canary in the cage for the nation on the direction the church has been going. And as I started seeing that, I just felt like the Lord was welling something up in me that I had to speak out. And my method of speaking out is not just, you know, hurling stones at people. I want to help people understand a lot of times the history of how we got there so that we can, and, and really, how did the church deal with this in the past so that we know how to deal with it today? Because the 2,000 years of church history that we have, they dealt with about everything that you can think of. Although they didn't have Facebook to deal with. <laughs> but, you know, aside from that, uh, they've dealt with it all. And so we can go back and we can look at that and we can learn something. The two main heresies to face the early church, and just for, you know, if you're new, uh, the, the, the word heresy, it, it basically is, is uh, it, it implies like a schism. A heresy is not Satanism. That's not a heresy. That's just a pagan faith, okay? 
Uh, heresy is not, uh, um, you know, uh, astrology. That's just paganism. A heresy takes on a form of Christianity and then skews it enough that it departs from the nature of the gospel. Okay? That's what a heresy is. The first two heresies to face the church, uh, the first one was what was known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were legalists. They were basically Pharisees that had gotten saved. And they took their same kind of Pharisaical lifestyle and applied it to Christianity and then tried to force everybody else to follow sort of this particular, you know, uh, uh, ideology, sort of this, this uh, adherence to the law, despite the fact that they were being taught that they were free in Christ. And so, and they were trying to apply this to the Gentiles as well, which is what a lot of the book of Romans is about. So that first group that we saw were these legalists. Now, most of my ministry... And I know a lot of these guys' ministry here, we've been fighting legalism for years. I mean, that's been the battle in the church, is fighting the legalists. Well, as we've been fighting the legalists, there's been another thing that's been rising up. And it is what I would call the Christian left. And I'll define that here in a second. The second heresy to face the, the first century church were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were really the progressives of the era. They were individuals who came in and they had a little bit of a, of a mixture of faiths. Uh, there was sort of this Jewish undertone for a lot of them within the church, but they had mixed it with Zoroastrianism, maybe a sprinkle of Buddhism, uh, and, and, and also just sort of this general kind of weird uh, um, super-spiritualism. They believed in all these different levels of heaven. They believed in, in that, uh, um, that, that Yahweh... Or, or excuse me, Jehovah, um, the, the, you know, the Father was bad, but Jesus came to free us from the Father, okay? Which is not unlike how a lot of people feel today. There's a lot of people that hate God, but they like this hippie Jesus guy, okay? They're okay with Jesus. Not a whole lot of people get offended by Jesus, you know, at least in their understanding of him, this picture, this, this stereotype they have of him, but they don't like the Father, because they, they, they are offended by the Old Testament. They're offended by the law. They're offended by these different things. And so the Gnostics came in, and the Gnostics also had almost zero value. They believed that everything in the material world was evil, and in fact, that, that all of society, you ready for this? This might sound familiar, was, was um, basically put here by Jehovah, that we were created here, placed here by Jehovah, and that he put us in a systematically oppressive world, sound familiar? And, and as such, we were trapped here, and the only hope was to kind of find the light inside, and they literally would use this term, and to become woke. In fact, the Manichees, who were the, the, the kind of the mo one of the most famous group of Gnostics that St. Augustine had battled uh, during the 300s, they had a name for Jesus. They called him Jesus the Luminous because he woke Adam. And, and, and you know, that sounds to some degree spiritual. Part of it, and this is why it's heresy, because it sounds at first, listen, you're kind of like, well, Jesus wakes us up. He woke me up. I was, I was in this lifestyle. I was over here, and he woke me up. But when you start understanding what they're meaning by this, there is a very specific meaning that is there, Okay. So today, and I believe all heresy that's ever faced the church fits into generally one of those two categories. It's either 
similar to the Judaizers, which is what we've seen a lot in this nation, or it's similar to the Gnostics, which kind of goes in line with this sort of progressive ideology. So when I say the Christian left, who are the Christian left? I believe that the Christian left are a growing constituency of Christians that are left-leaning, that have embraced progressive thought, liberal ideology, and oftentimes socialist or Marxist theory. And what does that tend to manifest as? That tends to manifest as uh, um, being pro-choice, uh, um, being you know, very comfortable and supportive and actually encouraging uh, uh, divergent views of sexuality and gender, not ascribing to a biblical definition of marriage, um, but the thing that I believe is the number one marker of what I would call progressive Christianity or the Christian left is a downgraded view of Scripture. This is what decides whether or not we are connected to him. How do we view this book? There was a study by Pew Forum that they found that 24% of church-going Christians... Now, I didn't say people in America that consider themselves Christians. I said of the people, the study was for people who are showing up to church, 24% of them, is all that is left of believers that hold this book to be inerrant and authoritative in their life. That means that seven, now I'm sure it, we're, we're 100% here, okay? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say we're 100%. And if you're not, you got to talk to your pastors afterwards here. But, but of, the, of, of Christians across America, that means that 76% of church-going Christians believe the Bible is something less than the Word of God. Now, a lot of them believe it's inspired, but, but not infallible or not inerrant, meaning that it has errors in it. But the moment you have an, you know, anything that you give room for, I don't know if that's quite right. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes arbitrary about what else isn't right. That view, during the 1700s, sparked a, an ideology or really a belief in a, a thing that was called the historic Jesus. If I would just take a show of hands and say, who believes in the historic Jesus? You'd probably be confused by the way I worded that, but you go, I believe in Jesus, and I think he was real in history, and I, maybe I believe in the historic Jesus. But when theologians say the historic Jesus, they mean a very particular thing. And the, the historic Jesus was basically, you know, uh, um, it was influenced by thinkers like Kant and Hegel and others, and eventually that crept into some, some guys that you've never heard of their names, most likely, towards the end of the 1800s. And there was a book that was written called The Quest for the Historic Jesus. And it's, I mean, this is still, to this day, a bestseller. And it's, it's, a, it's a smart book. Um, and it's about that thick. And it was an argument for the fact that basically, yes, Jesus was real, but we have to sift through the Bible to actually develop the caricature, uh, the caricature of the real Jesus and not the mythological Jesus that's presented by Scripture. And so what they would literally do is they would go through each passage of the Bible and they would, because in, during the 1700s it was the, the age of reason, you know, logic was guiding everybody, so they would go, okay, this whole thing with the bread and, and, and the, the fishes, that, that's not very logical. That didn't happen. But, uh, you know, Sermon on the Mount, that sounds reasonable. 
And so they would literally go through, cross, you know, okay, water and wine, no way, that didn't happen. You know, uh, resurrection, no. Jesus was resurrected in the sense that after his death, the, his, his message continued with his disciples. But they determined that most likely his disciples came and took the body and, you know, hid it and then said, claimed later that he rose from the dead just to be able to kind of, you know, uh, raise their societal clout. And so they go through and they systematically destroy this. Now, even though you might not have heard necessarily the book of that, that was written in the end of the 1800s, that ideology has impacted mainstream America to this day. And most people don't even know where it comes from, but if people are not connected to the Lord, they most likely have a view of God that's more like a great social reformer than the Savior of the world. And what we have rising up in America is it's not even so... See, the world's going to do... People that don't know the Lord are going to do what they do. I don't get worked up when non-Christians act like non-Christians. But what causes me to... Because those, those people just need to hear the gospel. But when we have people that are saying that they're Christians, that are teaching something alternative to the gospel... Paul has some very strong words. And see, I believe that we have to learn how we are going to persevere in this nation during a time like this. Um, there was a group of pastors in Bethesda, Pennsylvania, got together outside of an abortion clinic. And I write about this in the book. And, you know, we hear these stories all the time, pastors going to abortion clinics and praying, and, and, and you know, you, they're praying for the, the, uh, um, the women, they're praying for the unborn, they're praying, you know, for repentance and the workers. But that's not what these pastors were doing. These pastors on this day had gathered there in Bethesda, Pennsylvania, to pray for the abortionists as they, quote, did the will of God in performing these abortions. I wish that were the only story I had like that. I really wish it was. Uh, there was an, anybody on TikTok? Anybody want to admit that one? We asked about social media. Okay, I'm on TikTok. I'm active on TikTok. Um, and uh, so I, I post videos about Christianity. And, and the, um, there was a video on TikTok that went viral. And it was a, a homosexual pastor who was making a case that he believed Jesus was gay. Here was his reasoning. Two things. First, because he called John the beloved. That that must mean he's gay. And his second reason was because he most likely wore a tunic, and that was identifying with his feminine side because it's kind of like a dress. Wow. I mean, that, that was literally the video. <laughs> And this thing went crazy viral. And, and, and look, you know, this is, we, any time, and Christians have made mistakes in the past by, by elevating sins over another and just going after particular things. I'm not interested in doing that. I am interested in saying that there is, that there is this thing called Christianity. There is a thing called righteousness. There is a standard. I don't meet that standard by myself. I'm more messed up than you guys think I am, okay? And, and you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. 
I'm not a righteouser, okay? Like, I don't do life perfectly. And that's what all of us, we're here because we're believers. What are we believers in? His righteousness in our lives. But what I am not allowed to do as a Christian is to make agreements with sin under grace and say, well, that just, you know, I mean, under grace, it really doesn't matter. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a very particular, specific thing. And one of the tenets of the gospel that all Christians hold to is the idea, in some form or another, of what is either called the depravity of man or original sin. This is something that the Christian left has stopped believing in. And see, the Gnostics held to the same position, that man was mostly good, but the system was bad. So you can't talk about, even if there is individual kind of sins in our life, it's, it's just the result of the system, so you can't hold me responsible. And the whole nature of progressive Christianity is a lack of personal responsibility. And we don't like that, right? I mean, personal responsibility, nobody wants personal responsibility. I don't like personal responsibility sometimes. But, but it is the nature of life. I am individ- Nobody else will be responsible for you when you go before the Lord. You can't go, but Pastor Clint said this, and he said I was fine. No, it doesn't work like that. You know, you can't hold up that verse that says, aren't, aren't pastors held more accountable? Wasn't it his fault? No, it doesn't work like that. That verse is basically talking about that people hold pastors to a higher standard, not that God does. And, and so... We are individually responsible before the Lord. And there is this thing called original sin. You can Depravity of man. It is the idea that at some time, some people believe it happens at birth, some people believe it happens at an age of accountability. I think there's room for either of those within Christianity. I have my particular thoughts, but that's not what today is about. But at some point in your life, you hit a point to where you are responsible for your sin And you have the choice to try to live your own standard of righteousness or to submit to yourself to the lordship of Jesus and rely on his grace. That's the only two options. Try to do it on your own or try to rely on his grace. Relying on his grace should never produce, oh, now that I'm in grace, I can just keep doing whatever I want. If that is your response under grace, that you just see grace as a great way to justify your life, your lifestyle, your attitudes, your, your thoughts, you know, well, I'm just an angry person. I know that God loves me, but, you know, I'm just an angry person. That's just who I am. We don't get the right to make those agreements. That is a progressive thought. It is a form of progressive theology. Why is progressive ideology wrong? A couple reasons. First of all, it's based on Marxism based on critical theory. The whole nature of progressivism, and I don't have time to go through this, uh, I'm going to be releasing soon the history of critical theory, which is about an hour and a half of me going deep dive into history. If anybody wants, it'll be a free resource that we have. Um, but, but that the nature of progressivism is, is essentially approaches society or life or people, and instead of saying, let's look for ways to, you know, to improve, let's look for ways to encourage, let's look for ways to fix problems in society, it basically takes the response every single time, let's burn it down and start over. And that's the nature of Marxism. It's deconstructionist in that way. We have a lot of friends in the grace community that have a Marxist view of how to read the Bible. It is a deconstructionist view. 
every single passage, they do what's called biblical criticism, and they open it up, and they'll just begin to, you know, they have an experience. You know, if you listen to some pastor, Jim Richards or Clint or, or Joseph Prince or somebody that you like, and you have those moments where they take a passage of Scripture and it just blows your mind because they give you something you've never seen before. And that, that lends itself to what Dr. Jim calls spiritual extrapolation, where we start going into Scripture and we start looking for the thing that nobody else has seen. Well, after a while, you start looking for stuff that's not really there to try to twist it in a way. And next thing you know, you come up with a, you know, this extreme version where Jesus is gay because he wore a tunic. That's called spiritual extrapolation. It's not in the text. It's not even anywhere close to the text. And yet we see Christians going into this. And look, there are, I, I've, been, I've been very blessed to be, to, to run in a lot of circles with uh, um, you know, I, I, I had a goal with this book to do about 100 interviews. Uh, God opened up the door. I've done about 175 interviews to date this year on, on national media for this book. And, and I know a lot of the people, you know, that are in, in, in film and media within the Christian world publishing. And, you know, there's very few Christian publishers left. They're all owned by secular companies. And so they're deciding content. They're producing woke content that's coming out. And so we have, believers, we have to figure out how we're going to respond. And, and so I want to take you here to a passage in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I just want to go through, um, as, as we kind of prep to close, I want to give you some things here. And I know this is, hopefully, you know, I, I think more than anything today, I might just be kind of whetting the appetite for what the book can kind of lay the groundwork for for you. Um, but as we look at this, you know, I want to encourage you that, that I am still optimistic about the church. I mean, we, I've, I've painted some pictures of some situations. You go, man, how, how bad did we get here? Well, the church has a choice right now. And we can decide to persevere in the truth, to rise up, to strengthen ourselves. You know, we were talking last night about the possibility of there being kind of this new great awakening taking place. You know, we just saw yesterday on the, on the National Mall... You know, Sean Foyt out there with a whole bunch of other believers gathered in D.C., you know, worshiping the Lord and praising him in our nation's capital. I've not seen that happen for a while, like that at that level with that much attention. And there's some great things that are happening right now, but let's look at how we can establish our hearts in this. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy, verse 1, says, The Spirit clearly says in later times some will abandon the faith and fall into deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Does that sound familiar? Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, we don't know any of those, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You know, sometimes you hear these people say stuff and you go, man, how does that person sleep at night? They probably sleep good because their conscience has been seared. They're not staying up thinking about this. If they're wrestling with it, there's still be some hope for them. He says, they forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. I don't have time to go into the first part of that, but, but gratitude is the way, it, it is a tool to be able to keep your faith tied into the truth. Just walking in gratitude, that, just, just taking that every single day. I don't care what's going on in your life. I woke up today, my back hurt. You know, I, I mean, I've been dealing with back pain for a little bit, and, and you know what? I'm still grateful I'm alive. It's awesome. Life is awesome. I'm on a planet floating around really fast around a giant fireball, and I'm having the time of my life. It's awesome. Gratitude. 
goes here, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. He says, if you point out these things to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. The Bible says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. See, grace and truth is what embodies love. If you elevate grace or a concept of grace, I should say, at the expense of the truth, you will end up a progressive. If you elevate truth at the expense of grace, you will end up a bigot. You'll end up a Pharisee. But grace and truth come together. It's not a little bit of grace, half grace, half truth. It's 100% grace, 100% truth. And Paul writes and says, it's good if you point these things out to the brothers. You don't have to go convince all the world of this until they are saved. Then you start on a discipleship journey with them. But when somebody says that they are a Christian and they are living contrary to the teachings of Jesus, not in a way that's judgmental or hurtful or harmful, but it is a good thing to be able to sit down with them in grace and truth, in love, and minister to them on these things. Paul encourages that. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. That was the first warning about fake news. He says, stay away from fake news. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Jump down to verse 9. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. We put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially for those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. I'll say also, if you are old, don't let anybody look down on you. But set an example for the believers in speech in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. You go to a lot of churches, and it's, you know, two songs and one verse, and you go home. You know, they're, they're, they're not teaching the Word. There's not a value. It's downgraded. It, I call that the, the, the uh, genetically engineered church. You know, you eat a piece of fruit, you strip out all the seeds, and it's easier to consume when you have a seedless orange. But the problem with a seedless orange is it can't reproduce itself. It dies in one generation. And see, that's what's happened to parts of the church because they've stripped the seed out, and we have to insert the seed, the Word of God, back in. He says to read the Scriptures publicly, to go through these things, teach them. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. He says to watch your doctrine closely. I want to I give you kind of a picture of doctrine here and then I'm going to close. See, I believe, I grew up near Lake Michigan and we got these big orange and white swim buoys out on the out on the water, and I'm a terrible swimmer, so I got to know where the swim buoys are because that's where I drown if I go past them. <laughs> and so a buoy is a big floaty thing, and it's got a cable that runs down to some sort of you know a millstone essentially that's at the bedrock. And this buoy with the waves is able to kind of rotate in a circle, but there is a fixed point in the center with which it rotates around because that's where that millstone is tied to. See, we have a foundational stone, which, which is the word of God. And we are anchored to him through the truth. 
And as long as we are anchored to him, that cabling, I, I relate that that is what doctrine is. And there is room within Christianity for doctrine to have some differences. Although I think I'm right about everything. You know, and I wouldn't teach it if I didn't. I love the quote that says 15% of everything I'm wrong, I, I say is wrong. I just don't know what 15% it is. That's the problem, right? And, and so we, we think that we're right. But you know what? There's a debate between once saved, always saved, and if you can lose your salvation. Some people believe in speaking in tongues, as I do. Some people don't. And, and look, I have, I have very strong feelings about those, those issues. But I can fellowship with people and call them brothers and sisters in Christ if I know that they are connected to the word and that they are not deviating from the word of God and they are basing their faith on the word of God to the best of their understanding of it. We can fellowship. That is a, a circle that I would call of orthodoxy or a circle of what is called Christianity. The problem is when you cut that cable, you start drifting out into some sort of divergent dark waters of either progressivism or bigotry. And I think that we as believers, that we have to make a commitment that we are going to allow the word of God to be first place in guiding our reality of what is true. That we would submit every single philosophy and ideology and position within our life, every single aspect of our politic, to the word of God, first place. And that we would stand upon that. And that's what I want to ask you as I leave here to make an agreement to in your life. That the word of God would guide every single aspect of how you make decisions, how you view what is real, and ultimately that it would cause you to become active in carrying these things out. Amen? I want to pray for us here. And I just want to say, if you're here today and, and you feel like there's a call on your life to be involved in civics or politics or in speaking out or standing up or pushing back in some way, um, can I just have the liberty to have these people come up front here and just pray for them? Is that all right? Let's go ahead and stand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So if you're, if you're here today and you feel like there is a call on your life in some form or fashion, it doesn't mean you have to run for office, but that you feel like you're per, a person who is there to, to stand up, to really stand in the gap in society, in, in civics or politics, or to push back on some of these social issues that are happening, I'd like to pray for you this morning. That goes for pastors, too. Right? That goes for pastors, too. <laughs> Come on up. We got a guitar player in the house? Help me out up here. Mm. Thank you, Lord. See, we're battling major issues today, uh, uh, critical race theory, uh, mandates with vaccines and medicine and, and, you know, lockdowns and shutdowns and people trying to tell us, you know, uh, 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 you know that we can violate our conscience if, if it's, you know, against God, it doesn't matter. And I believe that we as believers need to become more established in our belief and our faith on these things more so than ever. And let me just say this, that there is a cycle within Christians that we go through, and I call it worry, anger, apathy. And when we see somebody we love starting to go astray, we get worried about them. And we start tugging on them, and that eventually leads to codependency, manipulation, and all these sorts of things. It doesn't work. Worry is not a godly 
you know, attitude. It's a natural attitude, but it's not a godly attitude. So next thing that happens is we go to this phase of anger. When worry didn't wor work, we then get mad at them. I put that book by your bedstand for a year and you didn't read it. And it causes, you know, Twitter wars and angry letters and people getting offended and all these sorts of things. And when that doesn't work, we have a tendency to enter the third phase, which is the most dangerous, which is where I believe that the majority of the church lives. And that is apathy. And apathy is a position where we throw our hands up in the air, goes, it doesn't matter, you can't change me, nothing works, I'm done. And we have people that have stopped serving, stopped giving, stopped showing up, because I'm just gonna build my own little world, and as long as my white picket fence world is okay, then I don't have to worry about anything else. Well, eventually they're gonna take your white picket fence. And look, I don't know, as, as a friend of ours says, I don't know if this is the end times, but it's the times that we have to learn how to walk in the times. And this isn't a doom and gloom message. This is an opportunity to be the love of Jesus. In the first century, uh, um, or uh, I think the second century, there's a guy named Jerome, and he actually appealed to Caesar and said, look, you're persecuting us as Christians. We're the best people you've got in society. We're going to follow every rule you give us that does not cause us to violate our faith. You know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to speed with our chariot down the cobblestone. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, you know, you know, kill babies for, you know, idols and these sorts of things. We're going to be good citizens. We're going to pay our taxes. We're going to do all that stuff. We don't have a problem with that. But we just can't bow to you as God. And it actually worked. It stopped the persecution during that era because of the position. He got political as a pastor. I know some of us don't like that, but it changed society. You know who else got political? Esther. She was real political. Let's pray. Father, I see world changers up here. I see people that are just just ready to be beacons of light, literally lighthouses, just shining brightly, showing people where the rocks are in society that, will, that would cause society to crash and to, to crumble into pieces, Lord. But you have placed them there to be beacons of light, to showcase what truth is, to show how to avoid harm, to, to show people how to thrive in life, how to experience the best of what God has for us. Lord, I pray for future legislatures. I pray for future uh, um, uh, um, candidates and, and uh, um, uh, policymakers, Lord. I thank you that there are people in here that are literally standing in the gap for this region, for the state of Georgia, for this nation. And Father, we speak against fraud. We speak against uh, uh, um, you know, uh, systematic ways of thinking that divide people based upon class or race. Lord, your word tells us that we are united in Christ. Lord, we speak against the, the, uh, 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 the twisting of, 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 of how you've made us that is distorting so many children's lives today. Lord, we call women to become women and men to become men. And Lord, as believers, we commit to showing them what that looks like, to experience their best, their truest identity. And Lord, I thank you for a grace church that knows how to reach out to people 
as they are navigating these issues and don't have them figured out all the way yet, to be able to embrace them in love in the process. Lord, none of us have this here all figured out perfectly, Lord, but we know that you do. And so, Lord, we put our hope in you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray for Forward Church, Father. I thank you, Lord, that they are showing how to go forward, that they are showing how to progress, not in progressivism, but to progress in Christ, that we are headed towards a specific destination, and that destination is in you, Lord. Raise them up, train them, Lord, equip them, protect them from being weaponized in hate and judgment. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you for your call on these people's lives, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Pray for strength and bravery and confidence and wisdom on how to handle these issues. Lord, I pray for every single person that's facing potentially losing their job about, because of how they feel about a vaccine. Lord, we pray for favor. And Lord, the world's going to do what the world does, Lord, but we pray for opportunity. And if anything is stolen, Lord, for somebody, we, we thank you that you promised to restore that seven times what the enemy has stolen. Hmm. We love you, Lord. Amen. His word, first place. Love you guys. Thank you.